0: Greetings in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I invite us now to bow our heads and pray uh, quietly on our own before I open us. Dear God, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, speak to us today through your word let your word transform us and convict us, and help us by your grace to live out your word faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now in this sermon today, we'll consider what Scripture reveals to us about God's character of uh, him, his justice, him as a judge, and deliverer. You know, when we think of the word uh, deliverer, we tend to think of food delivery, right? Uh, the Bible doesn't use the word deliverer in that sense, The Bible uses the word deliver to mean rescue, to deliver or bring to a safe space, uh, a secure place. And I'm going to take us through a long sweep of the biblical story and take us through key deliverance events in the Bible for us to see what God's character uh, as a judge and deliverer is. And first, we consider Genesis chapters 18 and 19. The context of that is in Genesis 17, God had appeared to Abraham and made covenant with him that Abraham shall be the father of many nations and kings, and that Abraham and his offspring shall worship God forever. And then in chapter 18, God visited Abraham and Sarah through three men, and Abraham hosted them with reverential hospitality. And then as they were about to leave, this is what God said, and the the scripture actually shows that God appears in the first person. And this is what God said in verse 17 to 21. The Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, what was God going to do? How was God going to show Abraham his justice and righteousness? And why did God go down to see and know what was happening in these two cities? In verse 20, we learn that there were many people or victims suffering in the two cities, crying out for justice and righteousness. The injustice, God said, was a very grave sin and God had heard their cries and God personally went down to see for himself the suffering of these people so that he would personally know their suffering. Abraham knew that God would judge and destroy the two cities but Abraham's nephew, Lot, was there. And so in the latter half of Genesis chapter 18, Abraham tried to intercede for the two cities. And then in chapter 19, angels actually visited Sodom, and particularly Lot, and Lot hosted them. And men from the city came and wanted to rape the two visitors. And Lot protected them, refused, and even had to bargain to offer up his daughters instead, uh, which was very messed up. And the angels then struck the evil men down, And then they warned Lot, and God then judged the two cities with sulfur and fire. And Lot and his family, they escaped, except for Lot's wife, who infamously turned back and became a pillar of salt. Now, Genesis 19 verse 29 says this, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. God delivered Lot and his family from destruction, and this was because of Abraham. God remembered Abraham, his covenant with Abraham, and on Abraham's intercession, he delivered Lot and his family. You know, this passage is the first time in the Bible that the phrase justice and righteousness appears like that. And we see that this sets out the framework concerning God's justice and righteousness, how God brings about justice and deliverance. And it is this, that there is a certain way of the Lord that there is justice and righteousness that leads to life. But people sin and fall short. And so people commit injustice and unrighteousness. And as a result, people suffer pain and brokenness from other people's sins, from other people's injustice and unrighteousness. And of course, their own sins as well. But God hears the outcry of those who suffer injustice and unrighteousness. He comes and He sees and He personally knows their suffering. And God will avenge, He will judge, and He will destroy all that is sinful, unjust, and unrighteous. But He keeps His covenant and He shows mercy on account of a righteous Intercessor, And then those who receive mercy may live and are expected to live out the way of the Lord, the way of justice and righteousness. Now, in particular, what was the injustice and unrighteousness of the two cities in Genesis 19? Many of us are familiar with, for example, Jude 1 verse 7, it says that, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, they, was, they were guilty of sexual immorality and, and Jude 1 verse 7 says unnatural desire. But Ezekiel 16 verses 49 to 50 also says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, and so I removed them when I saw it. So the sins of the two cities were sexual immorality and also pride and failing to care for the poor and the needy despite their prosperity. Now, many of us are familiar, of course, with sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah. But many of us don't remember or emphasize as much the latter aspect, which myself and some people, what we refer to within the Bible as biblical social justice, in the sense that God desires for everybody to treat one another with equity and fairness, that the weak and the vulnerable will be raised up, to the same level as everyone else. And we then consider Exodus chapter 2. Now, verses 23 to 25 says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And then chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, it says this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a broad and good land. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And then speaking to Moses, he says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Do you notice the same key phrases from Genesis 18? That God heard the groaning and the outcry of the people and that the people were suffering in slavery, oppression, and injustice under the taskmasters of Egypt. And God saw their suffering, and God knew their pain, and God remembered his covenants. And so he personally came to them, and he says of himself, I have come down to deliver them. God would deliver them out of a kingdom of oppression to a kingdom of abundant life that they may serve and worship God on the mountain of the Lord. Now, how were the Israelites being oppressed in Egypt? You can actually infer this from the law of Moses, given by God to Israel after they were delivered out of Egypt. God gave them the law, which is meant to make them holy, set apart from the surrounding nations, and especially Egypt that they were set free from. And so you'll see in the law many times, God says, do this or don't do that because you were once slaves in Egypt or because I brought you out of Egypt. The point is that God wanted them to live the way of the Lord, the way of justice and righteousness, the way that leads to an abundant life that is contrasted against the oppressive way of Egypt, the way of the taskmasters, the way of injustice and oppression. And notably, Leviticus chapter 19 sets out the holiness code. Now, many of you might be familiar Holiness is not just personal holiness, because John Wesley taught that holiness is social holiness. And so then what do we see in Leviticus 19, the holiness code? Now, verses 1 to 8 talks about ceremonial holiness with regard to how the people were to worship in giving sacrifices to God. And the rest of it actually deals with social holiness or social justice. So, in brief, it talks about things like, for example... Setting aside your harvest for the poor, for the vulnerable, for the foreigner, so that they can glean for their own provision, for their livelihood. Not to steal, not to lie, not to oppress or rob your neighbor, not to deny your neighbor his fair wage, fair salary. Not to curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, not to slander and to judge fairly in court without deference to rich or poor, not to bear a grudge or take vengeance, but to make peace. And then Leviticus 19, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And verse 33 to verse 34, it says this, When a stranger, a foreigner, sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Now here in Leviticus 19, is the only Old Testament statement on loving your neighbor as yourself, which is the second greatest commandment. You see, the whole holiness codes then ends with how the Israelites were to relate to the sojourners, the foreigners, the migrants. They were called to love the foreigners as themselves. Now why? The passage says because they knew and they were supposed to know what it is like to be foreigners in Egypt. God had delivered them from slavery and oppression in Egypt and so now they must go forth to live out what is just, what is right, not like how the Egyptian taskmasters had dealt with them. They were set free from Egypt in order to live the way of the Lord Live the way of justice and righteousness. And then we consider Leviticus chapter 25, which contains laws which talk about God's way of freedom, of liberty for Israel through the Sabbath and the Jubilee. So in verses 1 to 7, God commands Israel to let all the land and all the animals and workers rest on every seventh year, the Sabbath year. And verses 8 to 22, God commands the Jubilee year, which is the Super Sabbath year. It takes place on the 50th year. In the Jubilee year, the land will be returned to the original families and clans who were allotted the land at the start. And you know, God promised this, that if the people were to do that, they would rest from from their labor and let everybody rest, the land rest, on the Sabbath years, which is effectively going to be the 49th year and the 50th year. God promised that he would bless them with three years of harvest so that you know, they won't be working on the 49th and 50th year and they won't be sowing until the end of the 51st year. So God would give them three years' worth of harvest. And then verses 23 to 25, 24, or 34, God commands that the land shall not be sold uh, perpetually and that any poor Israelite who had to sell his land to pay his debts can redeem his land. And God says this is because they themselves, the Israelites, were sojourners on his land. And then 35 to 46, God commands the Israelites to show kindness to their poor fellow Israelites. It says this, verse 35, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger, a foreigner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. In other words, the Israelites were supposed to take care of the foreigners in their midst. And of course, in those days, the foreigners referred to basically the, the poor foreigners, those who couldn't fend for themselves. But if a fellow Israelite also fell on hard times and became poor, they were also to take care of the fellow Israelite who had fallen on hard times. And verses 47 to 55 then talks about how uh, God commands the Israelites who fell into debt and had become slaves because of debt to be released from slavery in the Jubilee year. And then you'll see a constant refrain in the whole of Leviticus 25, which is this, verse 38, for example, it says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So we see that God gave Israel this law to set them apart, to make them holy from Egypt. Egypt was the kingdom of taskmasters, of relentless productivity, Work harder, work faster, work cheaper. Sounds familiar, right? Israel, however, was to be the kingdom of liberty, a kingdom of rhythms of grace between work and Sabbath rest and restoration, a kingdom that is secure in God's faithfulness and provision. Whereas Egypt was the kingdom of inequality and oppression, Israel was to be the kingdom of equity and kindness. And this way of life was what the people of Israel were delivered to. They were set free to live the way of the Lord, the way of justice and righteousness. And you know, the historical records show, and most scholars and commentators agree that Israel never obeyed. Not once did they even obey the Jubilee law. That means they didn't even get to the 50th year. And of course, the scriptures show that they constantly disobeyed God, failed to live up to the standards that God had set in the law of Moses. And by a certain time, Israel was behaving essentially like Egypt. They had been physically delivered out of Egypt, but Egypt had never left their hearts. And through the various prophets, God time and time again rebuked them for disobeying him, for living out the way of injustice and unrighteousness, for oppressing their fellow brothers and sisters, for mistreating the weak, for their idolatrous worship of prosperity and power instead of worshipping God. And that is why, ultimately, they were judged and they were delivered out of their land. They were exiled out of their land and they were delivered into slavery, once again, under under Babylon and then Persia. Is that unfair? No, because God promised that this would happen if they disobeyed. In Deuteronomy, the last few chapters of Deuteronomy, God said, if you obey, this is your blessing. You will enjoy the land, the land of milk and honey. And if you disobey, this is the curse. You will be exiled from the land. In fact, God had been very merciful to them by giving them a lot of time from the time of Moses up until the time where they will finally exalt. But they did not turn from their ways. And you'll see this main theme in the prophetic books like Isaiah, Amos, and Micah. But in all these prophetic books, the prophets constantly declare that God promised that there will come a time when He will forgive the transgressions of His people and make them enter into the new covenant, where the laws of justice and righteousness will no longer be written as written laws or statutes but will be written on the hearts of the people. And you see that in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And God promised that there will come a perfect king who will bring perfect justice and righteousness and bring everlasting peace and abundant life. And then came Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1 verse 13 to 14, it says, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been delivered. First Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The New Testament church, very early on, understood that Christ is the fulfillment of God's justice and righteousness. You know, that framework that I talked about in chapter Genesis 18 to 19. Christ is the greater Abraham. On account of Christ, our righteous intercessor, God showed mercy to all of us who are in Christ, spared us the judgment and death that we deserve because of our failure to live up to God's justice and righteousness. And indeed, Christ took on the judgment and penalty that was due to us, as it was due to Sodom and Gomorrah, that we may be delivered from such judgment. Christ is the greater Moses. For even when we were lost in darkness without hope, God heard our cries for help and liberation, and God in Christ came to us to see our suffering and know our pain. And God remembered his covenants. God remembers his covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God remembers his covenants, his covenant in Christ with us. And so Christ came personally down to us, delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness, liberated us from slavery to sin, and delivered us into his kingdom, a kingdom of light, that we may serve him and proclaim Christ to the world. You know, in Luke 4, verses 17 to 21, it says this, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he began to say to them, Today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Christ declared that he was the fulfillment of the jubilee in Leviticus 25. He came to proclaim the jubilee to all of us and for all of us, to proclaim liberty to us who had been imprisoned in our sin condition, to deliver us out of oppression of sin and to rescue us from injustice and unrighteousness. And not only humans, but also all of creation. And so Romans 8, verses 22 to 23 says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who, are, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, the word groaning is the same groaning that the Israelites were groaning as slaves in Egypt. And God hears the groans of all creation and our groaning. And God will deliver. But that's not the end. Christ came in his first coming. He left. So what happens now? The scriptures show and promise us that he will return. And in the meantime, we are in this state of tension, where Christ's kingdom has come but not yet been fully realized, where God's deliverance and liberty has been proclaimed, but not yet fully effected. And so the whole world, including us as Christians, we continue to experience suffering and pain and injustice and unrighteousness. But the book of Revelation shows us that there will come an ultimate deliverance for God's people. And in the final judgment, God judges the city of Babylon, which is the spiritual successor to Egypt. And God delivers his people out of Babylon, avenging them, for all the imp- oppression and injustice and unrighteousness that they have experienced. You know, when we take such a broad sweep of scriptures, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of an important question, which is, who are we in the story? Where do we locate ourselves in this story? And our tendency, of course, is to think of ourselves as the good guys. right? The tendency is, when we look at Genesis 18-19, to 19, we, we think to ourselves, oh, surely we cannot be Sodom and Gomorrah. Surely we are Abraham. But you know, the scriptures say, you and I, we are Sodom and Gomorrah. In Exodus, we are the disobedient children of Israel. We were the, we were Egypt. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of the way of the Lord, the way of justice and righteousness, the way of abundant life. Dare we say that we have never been guilty of the pride of sodom or guilty of the way of carelessness towards the poor and the vulnerable in our midst, despite our prosperity, or guilty of sexual immorality, or guilty of mistreating the foreigner or the low-wage worker, or guilty of failing to set aside our harvest, our excess for the poor and the needy, or failing to pay fair wages, or bearing grudges, or taking vengeance, or failing to make peace, or guilty of being slave drivers like Egypt, of pursuing relentless productivity and prosperity at the expense of rest and restoration for ourselves, for our workers, for our land, for our environment, or guilty of failing to stand by our brothers and sisters around the world who are oppressed, persecuted, and who suffer injustice and unrighteousness. God indeed is our judge, but the truth is, We all are guilty. But thanks be to God that we have an intercessor greater than Abraham. We have a deliverer greater than Moses. And we have a covenant that is greater than a covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Because Christ is our intercessor. Christ is our deliverer. Christ, whose blood sacrifice has made us bound to the new covenant. And in Christ, we receive God's bountiful mercy. In Christ, we are set free from sin. In Christ, we are set free from the spirit of Egypt and the spirit of Babylon. And in Christ, we are no longer enchained by the insecurities and anxieties of this world. In Christ, we experience unlimited grace. Christ took on the penalty of our unrighteousness and he suffered the greatest injustice so that we are spared judgment and death, and we are delivered into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of abundant life. In the light of this grace and this mercy, how shall we live? Would we live as though nothing has changed? Would we continue to live according to the way of the world, the way of Egypt and the way of Babylon, the way of injustice and unrighteousness? Or surely not. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now you are the royal priesthood. Like the priests who represented God to the people of Israel, you and I, we who are in Christ, we are priests who represent Christ to the world. And we do that by taking reference to what actually Peter was referencing in this verse. he was actually alluding to Deuteronomy 4 and Exodus 19, where God told Old Testament Israel that if they truly lived out God's law, they would become a holy nation, a royal priesthood to the other nations. And the scriptures say that if they did that, the rest of the nations would come and say, wow, surely these people are wise and surely their God is so real and so close to them. In other words, if we truly live out the way of justice and righteousness, that the scriptures teach us, if we truly live out holy lives, personal and social holiness, if we truly do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God, every day, everywhere we are, in our workplaces, in our homes and families, in our communities, our neighborhoods, every moment of our lives, we will represent Christ to the world. And we will show the world how amazing and beautiful Christ is how amazing and beautiful His grace is, and how amazing and beautiful His kingdom is. And the shalom, the goodness and the peace and the well-being that is in Christ is that they will taste and see that the Lord is good indeed. So, like the priests who who interceded for the people of Israel to God, we in Christ, we are to be intercessors for the world to God. Just like how Abraham interceded for God to show mercy and to deliver the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, we are to intercede for people around us, to deliver them out of darkness into light. Just like how Moses interceded to the Pharaoh to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, we are to intercede to those who are powerful and the oppressors, to set free those who are captives of injustice and oppression, captives to sin. Let me share a true story. It's this ministry that reaches out to sex workers in Geilang. There was this particular lady from a certain other religion. She came to this ministry. And the ministry workers and volunteers, and I must say these are volunteers, include volunteers who are just like you and me. You know, they have whatever day jobs that they do, but they spend uh, their time also helping people like this lady. And they helped her with various things from language skills, vocational skills, helped her through her addiction issues, housing issues, financial issues, took care of a kid. Unfortunately, she got charged for a minor act of taking a phone that was left in a, one of those private hire cars. And the problem is that she had a past criminal case that was similar to that. And so the ministry staff and the volunteers, they rallied around her, and they interceded for her. They advocated for her, and then they called on me as a lawyer to help represent her pro bono. And so I wrote representations to the prosecution to plead for mercy. I wrote out her whole story, describing the family, her life, her background, and how this ministry had spent years rehabilitating her, helping her to where she is today. And I prayed for a uh, uh, deputy public prosecutor, so one of the government lawyers who met, handled such cases, um, who, who would understand my client's background. And when I got the reply letter, I knew that my, ans- my prayers were, were answered. Couldn't I have asked for a better one? because I knew that she was a a Christian who knows God's heart for justice and mercy. She herself spends time uh, mentoring and teaching children from low-income families like this lady. And in the reply letter, the prosecution declared that they would drop all charges against the lady. Actually, later on, I actually met the the DPP, and she told me that when she actually read the letter, she cried. When she read the story of this lady and how, you know, the Christian community came around her and interceded for this lady. And this lady, by God's grace, came to see the hand of God in her life and how, you know, the ministry staff and volunteers reflected God's justice and mercy. And I think for me, this story is a glimpse into the heart of God, a heart of justice and mercy, a heart of righteousness and compassion, a heart to know the plight of his weak and needy children, his heart to deliver them out of suffering, of sin, of injustice and unrighteousness and to deliver them into a kingdom of peace and abundant life. And we as the children of God, we are called to represent the heart of God, to live our lives every moment embodying this heart of God. And we do so mindful that even now we are not perfect, we're not sinless. And it's only possible because Christ is our intercessor, standing in the right hand of God the Father, advocating for us, interceding for us, speaking up for us, and pointing to his nail peers' hands every time we fall short. And this is God's amazing grace, that such perfect justice and mercy can come together in Christ, that we have been set free in Christ to live, not to live on our own terms, but to live the way of the Lord. The way of justice and righteousness. And my prayer for all of us is that we will truly live the way of Christ in every moment of our lives, wherever we are, so that the people around us, especially the weak, the vulnerable, may also find the abundant life that is in Christ. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Dear God, we thank you so much for your mercy to us that though we were once helplessly sinful, we were once those who have fallen short of your glory, fallen short of your justice and righteousness. But you and your mercy came to us and lifted us up and delivered us into your kingdom of grace, of light and life. And we pray And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that each of us, all of us, and as a church, we will grow in living out your way, the way of justice and righteousness, the way of abundant life, that the people around us may taste and see indeed that you are good and yearn to know you and enter into your kingdom. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.